Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our dap today, Masachet Nidarim, Daf Mem Chet, page 48. I'm going to begin on the bottom of Mem Zion with a very long Mishnah, but the Gemara in this Mishnah, I think, actually gives us some clues to our big question we've had, which is, what is the story with Nidarim? Like, why were people speaking like this or doing things like this? And the Mishnah reads as follows. Harini alayich cherem. So if somebody says to his friend, right, I am cherem to you, hamoder asor, the person to, you know, who uh, made, basically the person to whom this vow is declared is forbidden to get benefit from the person who declared it. So essentially what this mission is dealing with is when we use this term cherem and saying like hareni alayach versus the next one, which is going to say hare at alay cherem, it's figuring out like who is a sore to who. So if you say harini alayacherem, right, then the person to whom the vow was declared, right? So if Ruvain says that, then Shimon is forbidden to derive benefit from Ruvain. If Ruvain says, Hare at alayacherem, you are cherem to me, hanoder asur, right? The person who made the vow, meaning Ruvain, is forbidden to get any type of benefit from Shimon. Hareni alayich va'atalai, right? If they com- if Ruvain were to combine both of those phrases, shnei hanasurin. Ruvain could not get benefit from Shimon, and Shimon could not get benefit from Ruvain. Now, again, what's very interesting about this, and this was brought up a few dapim ago, is this idea that Ruvain, somebody could make a neder prohibiting the other person, like basically saying the other person can't derive benefit, which is very, very interesting. So then the Gemara basically wants to discuss what do you do about public property? Right. What do you do uh, in the case of anything that's owned public property, which means that every person who's part of the public sort of has some ownership in that. So both of them are permitted to derive benefit from something from the Olay Babel, from those who ascended from Babel. So the what's going to be explained basically is that these were properties that were uh, allowed for public use by those who went back to Eretz Yisrael from the Babylonian exile. Um, and they are not considered as belonging to each member of the general public. Rather, they're considered to be hefker. They're considered to be ownerless and all Jews can use them. So therefore, even if there's a vow about not deriving benefit, these are ownerless properties and therefore uh, they're allowed to, the, the people who are subject to these vows are allowed to use these types of properties. But they're prohibited to derive benefit from the facility of the town in which they reside. So in other words, any type of, uh, any facility that's part of the municipality, right, is not hefker. Um, And those are things that we say that everybody in the public uh, basically owns, and they're all considered to be partners in it. um, And you're not allowed to actually um, you're not allowed to derive benefit from it. Now, so now the mission is going to go ahead and explain what these terms mean. The Aza Davar Shole Babel, what are the, you know, Ole Babel, Kagon Har Habayid, Ba'azarod, Ba'aborsha, Ba'amsadar. So this would be like the Temple Mount, the courtyards, and a water cistern in the middle of the road. So this makes sense. These are sort of like properties that belong to all Jews, right? And remember, these water and cisterns were important because when you were Ola Larega, when you went up, to Jerusalem during the holidays, um, you needed uh, water. So there would be there was this very extensive 
you know, sort of public service works uh, of these ownerless uh, systems. What's it, this, you know, something that's owned by the town, and this is the category that's actually owned by the public. Right, so these would be the town square, the bathhouse, the synagogue, the art, and the the ark and the books. Now, one thing I can't figure out is they, they don't get into, and and this was a question I had was does it have to do with where the the source of funding comes from to maintain these? Right, so the source of funding for let's say Har Habayit and the Azaro would be things that were brought to the Beit HaMikdash, and they also preserve some of the water cisterns. But, you know, these are things that like a specific town owns and everybody in the town is responsible for sort of maintaining it. The Mishnah goes on to say, And so this is very interesting. Someone who writes his share to the Nasi. So let's say two people forbid their property upon each other. And so therefore nobody can use sort of these town facilities, right? Uh, that we listed before, like the town square, the bathhouse, the synagogue, they can sort of reverse this by basically writing a document which says that their share of this part of public property actually goes to a third party, and the nasi is the third party. And remember, the nasi was basically sort of the political and spiritual leader um, of the Jews around the time of the Mishnah uh, and the Gemara, actually starting in the time of the Zugot, right, the pairs, which is the, uh, which was five generations, the last of whom was of Hillel um, and Shammai. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, you, you basically could sort of give it to the Nasi. Um, and then they're going to have a machloket about this, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, right, actually, you could write this document either to the Nasi or to a commoner, meaning just any average Jew. Um, because the difference is that somebody who writes it to the Nasi doesn't have to actually have him uh, take a Kenyan over it. He doesn't actually have to like formally acquire his portion. But to a Hejot, you do have to, there has to be some type of formal like acquisition. The Chachamim say whether it's the Nasi or Hedjot, there has to be some type of acquisition, right? And then it says, And they mentioned the Nasi only because it was common for people uh, to give their, uh, their uh, the reason why the mission was written this way is because the Nasi was sort of the most common one that was used. But according to the Chachamim, it could be anybody and you still would have to do some type of acquisition. And finally, Rabbi Yudomer, the people of the Galil don't need to do this process at all. They don't have to write anything to the Nasi. Because their forefathers wrote this form. And the, the Gemara is going to explain this a little bit more. So uh, the Mishnah, you know, again, sort of starts, sorry, the Gemara here um, is going, wants to understand this a little bit more. Um, and starts with the question of Amai Mitzar, right? Why is he prohibited from using these facilities at all? So Amar Rav Sheshet, Hachi Katani, this is what the Mishnah wanted to teach. Umay Taknatan, what is the remedy for people who were forbidden to each other? Yichtavu Chalkan Lenasi, they should both write their shares to the Nasi. And then the Gemara goes on by continuing, uh, you know, uh, the rest of the Mishnah there. 
um, because it, it was a little bit confusing. So it's sort of elaborating and clarifying what exactly the Mishnah went. Then it goes on to talk about this thing about the people of the Galil. And I thought this was an interesting Gemara because I think this sort of shows a little bit what's going on here with all these Nadarim. Uh, Tanya, so with Todd and Abraisa, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Anshei Galil, um, and this is a great word, the people of the Galil were, were Kantranin, right? Which is like, if you look in some English translations, they were like, you know, uh, they were like disagreeable people, basically. <laughs> they contrarians. Were difficult. Yeah, they were contrarians, exactly. So it sounds like, and they would make these types of nedars like all the time. They weren't like easygoing people, right? So therefore, because people saw this going on, their forefathers went ahead and they basically made sure that like all their shares, in other words, all these types of uh, uh, properties that really belong to the municipality, to the town, really just belonged to the Nasi. Uh, the, and the Mishnah that you're going to discuss, Anne, is going to discuss this a little bit more. But we have a clue here, which is that there's really a sociological piece to Nadarim that I think explains why Nadarim doesn't fundamentally make sense to us. This had to do with the way that people spoke to each other. It's not a way that we speak today. Uh, you know, I think that is why some groups of Jews are very careful to always say Belineder, because I think on the one hand, it's showing how careful we are and meticulous we are with language that we use. But this also was some type of means that people did to sort of, I don't know, show their anger or resentment towards another person. Right? I don't see anything how this could be a loving act towards another person. But this mission kind of comes in with this clue that's elaborated on by this Brysa to basically say like, yeah, this wasn't a good thing. And that's why this weird solution had to be brought about with the Nasi, that basically everybody was making nedras towards each other. So we just had to make all the property, the property of the Nasi and not the property of the actual people who lived in the town. So, you know, very a, a good clue and a very interesting Mishnah here. It's a real like a kind of extreme solution. Um, I think it does answer some of the questions that we've been having. And I do think that people don't use language this way nowadays. Not in I think people are careless with language. So that people say, Oh, I swear, meaning they say all they say the language of Nadarim all the time without anybody really need meaning it in the way that it clearly was meant in the time of the Gemara. And I at some point learned to be very careful of the language that I use to try to be exceedingly careful to not use the formulation of neder because the formulation of neder kind of locks you into the neder, except for that I wonder, like, it seems to me that perhaps it doesn't lock you into the neder for all that I have years and years of being trying to be careful about language because we're not using these words in the way that they were used when people were taking a darm right and left. Yeah, exactly. So I think... And especially because we're learning this, let's be honest, with some elements of translation as well, you know, I think this is, it's difficult for us to understand. There's a nuance of language here that doesn't really make sense necessarily. And then on top of that as well, there's this like concept of language and sort of a harshness of language that we just don't have today. Yeah, I think we just don't relate to it as binding in this way. All right, I'm going to hit the next Mishnah, which is on Ahmed Aleph of, of Memchet of 48. And it goes on, meaning there's a lot. I w if we had more time, I would read from here to the end of the daf. I'm not going to do that, obviously. But there's it's a rich, um, you know, end of a Amadal, Amad Bet. 
So this we know, right? One who's prohibited from by a vow from benefiting from his friend, but ain't lo mayochal, and he has nothing to eat. No, no lacher matana. So then, what happens when we've seen this kind of case before, right? That person from whom he can't get any benefit can give food sustenance to somebody else as a present. mutarba, and then once it's somebody else's as a present, then he's allowed to eat it. And then we've got a story in the Mishnah, which we always comment on this because it's not so common that it happens in the Mishnah. Your Dana, you talked about Beit Choron a previous time. So it happened in the city of Beit Choron, where a father, so maybe this is also a particularly, you know, vow happy kind of place, um, where the father vowed not to derive any benefit um, from the son. And then the son's getting the son is marrying off his son. He's got this problem, right? Because his father won't get any benefit from him, but he wants everybody wants the father to be at his the the father who is the grandfather of the son's son, right? The son is getting married. The grandfather needs to be able to participate, but he can't have it. At, the son can't have the festivities at his house because then the father, can, the father who's the grandfather, cannot participate. So he goes to his friend, so somebody else altogether, and says, "You know, can let, we're gonna we're gonna use your courtyard? I'm gonna you know finance it all. It will be for you like a gift. So then my father will come and join us at the meal because it won't be benefiting from me, from the son who he has forsworn." Um, benefit from, and I gotta say, like people should have just been really careful um, of what they were gonna with what they were gonna say, because here you see how like the society took these nidarm careful, they took them seriously, and yet people were still not careful enough in what they were gonna say to avoid getting kind of caught in whatever the nidar might have been. Amar. So then the the friend who is gonna be the host, right, says as follows. He says, if they are mine, meaning my property, right, then they're already consecrated to, to heaven, meaning the Beit HaMikdash, and then they're forbidden to everybody. And so then the person who is the son, who is the father of the kid, the guy who's make, who's getting married, right, he says, I gave you my property so you could dedicate it to Shamayim, like, what kind of thing is that? Amar lo. So he says back, He says, you gave me your property just so that you and your father could sit and eat and drink together without having this vow hanging over his head. Meaning, now it's on my head. The Meaning, his complaint is, that you haven't really removed the transgression of violating a vow simply because you've given me this property, because the reason you've given me this property is for the point of, you know, enabling the father to be there. So then doesn't that fundamentally amount to this guy's quote unquote gift, not really being a gift and it all, he, he sees it as, you know, he is facilitating the transgression by the father. I'm chachamim kol uh, so then Chazal, the sages, they said any gift that is um, not, so let's see how to say this 
any gift that is not the case that if they were to come and consecrate it, that it would be consecrated is not considered a gift. Meaning the the recipient, the person who gets the gift, has to be able to do this kiddushin, to do this dedication to the temple. That doesn't mean they have to actually dedicate it. It means that they have to be able to for it to be considered a legitimate gift. You can't say, oh, but I gave you that for the purpose of this wedding. You don't have the right to consecrate it. Of course he has the right to consecrate it. That's the whole point, that he has the right to consecrate it. So then the Gemara comes and is it's a really interesting opening of the Gemara because it says, Maseli's store. The Gemara wants to know, was this something that was brought in the Mishnah to contradict? No, I'm sorry. Was Isn't there an, an incident that happened that we're going to bring to contradict that which took place in the Mishnah? And then the Gemara goes on to say it's a chisurei mechzer, that the text itself is um, abbreviated in some way. And, you know, how should the Mishnah, which is incomplete, should really be it goes back to, you know, revisiting the question of the incident of Beit Choron. Um, I don't want to stay in this case, um, mostly because, as I said, there's so much to do on the staff. Um, so if you'll jump to the top of a bet with me, so there's a man who had a son who, um, who stole sheaves of flax. And so then the father took a vow, the father takes a vow prohibiting the son from getting any benefit from the father's possession, possessions, meaning you're a thief, you don't get to benefit from my household. I'm Rule. Um, so then they said to the father, So what would you do if you're, if the son of your son would become a Torah scholar? You want him to be able to inherit. And then what are you going to do? Meaning how are you going to make that work when you've told your son that he can't get any benefit from your stuff. Amar Lahun, he says to them, So then let the son of mine acquire the possessions and only So he says, if the son of my son, meaning my grandson becomes a scholar, then let my grandson take the stuff from my son. And so then they ask him, my, like, what is this ruling here? Amri Pompadita so the sages, um, the rabbis in Pompadita said, it's as if he said, take this property on condition that you do this next transfer to your son. Meaning it's exactly the problem that seems to be a problem. Um, every time that you kind of um, try to affect a Kenyan, that you have a formal act of acquisition, but it's done um, for some other purpose, right? then the definition of that is that it, lokane, it does not work. It is not actually an act of acquisition. Um, and Rav Nachman and Rav Ashikam, they talk about different cases of exactly how, in fact, this acquisition could take effect. Um, okay. And it's worth reading. It is. I don't want to suggest that it's not. The fact that I'm jumping over it does not mean that I don't want to read it. Um, but I want to get to this very last passage, which is the very... End of chapter five. So the end of the Gemara quotes the Mishnah that says that the sages said that a gift that is not such um, so certain to be a gift that if the person who receives it were to dedicate it to the Beit Mikdash, it would not be considered dedicated. Well, then, then that's not considered a gift. Meaning this, we understand the person who receives the gift 
has to be able to do really whatever they want with it, including making it off limits to anybody. So the Gemara here says, Kol, when it says, Kol Matana, every present, any present, right? What does that mean? Kol Li Mai, what does it come to include? Lovely Tuye Ha Milta Deshadye Bekefe. Isn't that then just adding the whole story of the person who took the sheaves of flax to say that the gift of the father, right, does it not have any effect? So the Gemara says, Lo, Le Tuye Lishna Batra Deshmaita Derava. So the Gemara says, no, the whole reason to say that it doesn't have effect is to be able to include the later version, Lishna Bastra, the later version of what Rava had said, namely, that when you give a gift that means you're doing it to get around a vow, that that has no effect. And that's true even if you don't come out and say, you know, I'm doing this for the sake of the vow, um, to avoid the vow, even if you don't set it up as something formal, it will still be a problem. So the the Gemara here, this chapter ends on this point that we take vows seriously, pretty much. Looking at them and, and pointing at them, so to speak, and say, well, there's a, there's a workaround, there's a loophole, then that's when the Gemara says, no, this is really a neder, and you have to treat it seriously because because that's the nature of what this is. There are extenuating circumstances where, where the Gemara allows for a workaround, but otherwise, the moment you say, this is what I'm doing, I'm making a workaround, then you aren't doing anything at all. It doesn't count as a workaround at all. And you're stuck in the vow. So, so I just like, I just like how it took till we got this parak to really get into sort of the absurdity of the workarounds. I mean, we had my Mishnah, which talked about this thing with the Nasi, this Mishnah here, which basically is like, you can do that workaround, but if it's too insincere, we're not going to allow it. Um, it's just, I don't know. I'm still really not sure where to put this whole concept of Nadarim. But I, I think that you, something you said long ago, and I think it shows up now and again, not as, as pronounced as we might want. I think that the sages did not like the fact that people were taking vows, right? Like that they were taking them in the extreme. And then they have to live with them. And and it's a little bit like this idea of saying, like, tough luck. Like, be more careful in the way you speak. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 